Siam Nostalgia. Welcome to Friends and Relatives, where we create, share, and educate with stories, news, and ideas from the Coast Salish homeland. We hope to influence perceptions of the Coast Salish people. I'm your co-host, Tony Hilaire. I'm a Lummi Nation citizen and a board member of the Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Today, I'm with co-hosts. I'm Bo Garrow. I am from Cheyenne River. I am Hongpakpa and Mini Koju, which is Lakota. One is from Standing Rock, and one is from Cheyenne River. Satsumtum Sunnestat, Daryl Hilaire, Nao Siam, and I'm glad to be here with you today. I squile Nishjalicha, Tony Hilaire, Sunnestat, Satsumtum Sunnestat, Aishka Utsa Kwealanan Utsa Kwalkwal Tiakayas. Good day, my friends and relatives. Thank you for listening to the words today. We are honored to have with us Dr. Dakota Lane, also known as Mamusia. Heishka Dakota for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, and describe your journey to the Lummi Tribal Health <clears throat> Clinic? Uh, yes, so uh, my name is Dakota Lane. Uh, my Indian name is Mamusia, which was given to me by my uh, grandfather, Vernon Lane. Uh, I am also a Lummi uh, tribal member. Uh, my journey to the uh, to where I am today, the Lummi Health Clinic, is, is quite a long and, uh, I guess, obtuse one. Um, I uh, graduated from Seaholm High School here in Bellingham. Then I went to uh, the University of Washington, where I got my electrical engineering degree. Worked in the corporate world, including AT&T and IBM for a world. Didn't like it. Decided to join the Peace Corps. Ended up in Africa. Uh, as a teacher, and it was there I decided to become a doctor because I felt like that was the best way to give back to my tribe. Uh, then went to uh, Cornell uh, Medical School in New York City, uh, and then finished there, got my residency. I did my residency in Florida as a family medicine doc and uh, ended up at uh, here at Lummi Clinic my lifelong goal. I've been here since September 1st. So you had an aha moment in Africa? I did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> well, I w- part of the reason why I did Peace Corps uh, and led me to there is I, I realized that my engineering degree wasn't going to let me help with uh, or contribute back to my tribe. It was very technical. Worked for, you know, my job involved working for AT- uh, AT&T uh, computer networking, a lot of technical stuff that's boring that I enjoyed and learned, but it just wasn't going to lead me back to my tribe. So then I did Peace Corps because I wanted to travel, and AT&T did not give me enough vacation time. Two weeks wasn't enough vacation for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Peace Corps, and uh, while I was there, I realized that um, to have, although I was a teacher, I'm not, uh, had a great impact. I, I like to think so, but I I realized that as a doctor, I could um, contribute the most to a community, including Lummi, our, our own people. How has returning home given you a better, given you a better understanding of the Lummi people and our culture? I'm still learning. Uh, I've been away since 1998, so it's almost been 16. 16? No, I can't do math. I went to med school and I still can't do math. Uh, 20, Close to 20 years. 18 years, 18 years, 19 years. And um, a lot's changed. Uh, I've uh, still, you know, I haven't been to the smokehouse in a while. That's been a long, you know, that's been a very important to our culture for those who are listening to smokehouses or uh, they, where we do powwows and, uh, and I'm still learning learning about that. Uh, I, uh, and so returning, I straddle two different worlds. My mother's white and my dad is Galen Lane uh, of Lummi. And so uh, I'm, it's a balance between both those worlds uh, and trying to navigate both those. So I find myself still learning from all my, rel- all my relations um, and I have much more to learn. You hit on a couple of things there, uh, Dakota. One, that you uh, you wanted to come back and help your people 
maybe you can share with us uh, where that thought came to you, that feeling actually that came to you. And the other important point is uh, you say that you're always learning. Uh, you get around our elders, and that's the phrase that they use most often. They believe that, that, that we're all always learning. So that's a good thing to pick up and uh, something that um, you know, we should encourage each other to carry in our, in our everyday life. Uh, so, uh, two questions. With the first was why do I want to come back to Lummi? When did you did? Is that always something that uh, oh. you wanted to do? Is is come back to Lummi? Uh, you know, surprisingly, yes. Uh, I think I was a little bit selfish in, in undergrad because uh, I wanted to play video games. I knew I wanted to help Lummi, but I didn't know how. And so, when I, I say I wanted to play video games, because I thought it'd be cool to build a video game machine. And that electrical engineering put me on that path and I realized, uh, actually I don't like sitting in front of computers all day. So I changed careers. Um, but the desire was still there. Uh, there's no doubt, I think growing up, uh, working at my grandpa's fireworks stand, uh, seeing all my cousins, you know, um, <clears throat> that it's different and that there's a huge need for, for any kind of help. I don't even know exactly what that, how to describe it other than it was a strong desire uh, to contribute back to community. So that's what led me to that. And then it just, from that thought until probably Africa, there was this long twisted path to, to realizing that the best way to do that was to medical school. And I wasn't too clear about the second question, but that that um, that value uh, to be always learning is that something you picked up at well uh, coming back home, or is that just kind of the way you are? That you... Well, I like to think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think if anything, med school has showed me shown me that I can never know everything, um, and it's just. It's just the, you know, engineering gave me the tools on how to approach a problem. Uh, med school taught me how to, uh, you know, relate. It's surprisingly to relate to people. Some people think doctors don't relate well to, to patients, but uh, I learned uh, through med school how to communicate um, what the problem is and how we can treat it and how we can approach it, and that's the engineering side of me. Um, but the, uh, in terms of always learning, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's, I think it's always a wonder to learn something new and realize that some of the things you can, you can do it. It's not that, you know, like it's like trying to fix a car. It's like this big black box, but you look at it and you think, you know, you find the broken part and you try to fix it. Uh, we'll be right back with more on Friends and Relatives. I'm your co-host, Tony Hilaire, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham.
joining us. You're listening to Siam uh, Nostalgia, Friends and Relatives Radio Hour. I'm Daryl Hilaire, and today we're talking to Dr. Dakota Lane about health care and health care at the Lummi Nation. As we know, uh, health care is a treaty right under the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. And that means that the United States government has a trust responsibility to provide health care to the Lummi people. What does that mean to, uh, to the people at the Lummi Health Clinic, uh, Dr. Lane, and those things that you see uh, in terms of uh, perhaps uh, health care disparities and how they uh, stack up versus national and regional trends and what are we doing to hold uh, the United States government accountable for fully funding and ensuring that they recognize our, our health care needs? So the short answer, if the U.S. government is fulfilling its treaty obligations, uh, I would say no. Um, but, uh, of course, there's always uh, a gray area. Uh, there's... Um, Something called the, you know, if you look at something called the Indian Health Service um, that was uh, essentially formed 50 or so years ago, um, and and its main goal was to provide health care for all its uh, American Indians or Alaska Natives, uh, in particular because of exactly what, what you said, uh, Daryl, is that the treaties said that the government would provide for the health of, of American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, uh, now we know that uh, the American government has, has always broken its promises um, and uh, as a result they've always the American government has always underfunded uh, the Indian Health Service and this has been uh, not new, it's been chronic um, probably the best example was a, a 1990, I believe, eight or maybe 2002 study that looked at the how much money the American government was spending on its its population. And it looked at compared, you know, compared the general population uh, compared with the Medicare population and American Indians, and even include the prison population, um, and. Uh, just kind of an open-ended question: Which population was uh, had the lowest funding? Uh, that would be American Indians. The prison population had. Uh, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but essentially it was a thousand dollars per per uh, prisoner, and the American government was funding three hundred dollars per uh, American Indian. Um, so it wasn't too recently uh, that. Or still, you know, it's, it's under underfunded. Um, that changed a little bit uh, with the with the Obamacare, with the Indian Health Care, um, and in the Affordable Care Act, there was a, a I believe a clause or part of the law about uh, Indian health care, which essentially allowed American Indians and Alaska Natives to apply for Medicare um, and Medicaid. Previously, uh, a lot of people may be surprised to learn that we didn't qualify because technically we had health care under the Indian Health Service. So the American government was paying uh, for the health care of, of Alaska Natives and American Indians. Um, however, thanks to Obama, uh, unsure of what's going to happen under uh, Mr. Trump, but essentially um, now as of uh, 2010, the American Indians and Alaska Natives could qualify for Medicaid, Medicare. Um, and on top of the Indian Health Service funding that was provided to, uh, I'm going to speak specifically to Lummi, it's hard for me to speak about other tribes at the moment, uh, but to Lummi, uh, we, we receive an Indian Health Service block grant because uh, the Lummi government has decided to be to have self-governments and manage our own money. So Indian Health Service gives us the money and says, here you go, spend it on health care. Um, now, that's, that money has never been enough. It's been about a third of what, what um, the actual cost is. Generally, it used to be, you know, if you needed any procedure, surgery, et cetera, you had to get seen by a doctor 
um, before April, May, June. Otherwise, the funding would go to um, uh, emergency funding where we'd only fund emergency care and pregnant women. Uh, now, fortunately, with Obamacare, that changed with Medicaid and Medicare, and we could start, the clinic itself could start billing. And as a result, we now have a lot of third-party revenue. And uh, fortunately for us, we've started to um, bill and build some funding. And now uh, it's not difficult. Uh, there's always paperwork and things that make it a little difficult, but it's not difficult to get the care Lummies need. What are those things that you see uh, within our community as uh, probably our our, our biggest uh, our biggest healthcare problem? Whether it's in terms of maybe heart problems or uh, cancer or obesity or the like, uh, what are those things that you see most often, or kind of like at the top top of the list in terms of what we have to? So I would say, so there are some national statistics, and I think uh, you're alluding to things like uh, diabetes. That's always been a big national uh, epidemic among American Indians. Um, obesity is also listed nationally. Um, as uh, with regard to cancer, um, there's an interesting phenomenon where, uh, and this is a reflection of the healthcare system, where we actually, overall, from a population standpoint, you know, nationally, uh, American Indians have less cancer compared to the general population. But when they do get cancer, compared to the rest of the population, we're more likely to die from it. Um, and so now, uh, I think to narrow into the uh, Lummi people specifically, um, uh, Justin Iwasaki and I, Justin, the medical director, uh, and I uh, don't have specific statistics for Lummi. Uh, part of that is a function of we're just getting teams together to give us a good, um, to allow us to look into things like this. Um, and I think we're getting there. Um, you know, our medical clinic was, was uh, still we're still developing our quality improvement program and risk management, which would that would fall under and allow us to implement and study the Lummi population. Um, so those things are, are we're, we're building for the ability to learn more about specific Lummi specific health care disparities. Uh, so that's kind of the technical side. Uh, I think from a personal side, uh, from the patients I see, um, I would argue that our biggest, you know, from the chronic medical issues, um, like you listed, diabetes, hypertension, uh, smoking, cancer, um, cardiovascular disease, I would argue our biggest problem in a, is smoking. Uh, we, we like to smoke a lot of cigarettes out of Lummi. Um, I would say more so than the general population. Um, and... Uh, while I understand, you know, our, we have the nice smoke shop out in the casino. You know, the casino is, is you can smoke in the casino. Uh, our smoke shop sells cigarettes at, at uh, cheaper because we don't, they're not taxed by Washington State. Um, so uh, certainly it's easy for them and uh, relatively cheap for them to get um, cigarettes. Now, uh, while, you know, cigarettes is a is something that a lot of people could, if they stopped smoking, would help improve a lot of their health issues. Um, so that's, for me, that's, that's what I spend probably easily 20% of my time with patients talking about quitting smoking. Uh, the next thing is, the next biggest problem, and these two go hand in hand, is obesity and diabetes. Um, the, we have, our clinic has an amazing uh, diabetic counselor um, his name is Don, and uh, Justin recently hired him a couple months ago, and uh, he he is a wonderful asset to our clinic. Uh, he's not native, but he's also but his story is is pretty uh, spectacular. He's a type one diabetic, 
So he has to check his blood sugars every day, uh, every you know, every time he eats dinner. So he or or anything, every time he eats anything. Uh, he's also a phenomenal athlete. He rides his bike to work every day, and then as for his lunch hour, he then goes for a five mile run, um, uh, and then comes back and then bikes home. Um, so he knows as he so given his. You know, he's, he's a type 1 diabetic who requires a very rigorous insulin regimen, uh, is able to communicate with, with our diabetic population about insulin use, the importance of insulin, how to use it. Uh, he brings way more experience than, than I do. You know, in med school, I just learned on paper, oh, yeah, you know, sugar's a little high, you need to take more, more insulin, and you need to change your diet. But he, here's a guy who's actually living it, and he's able to communicate well with patients about it. Uh, so that's from the diabetic standpoint. Uh, from the obesity standpoint, um, that is a, a little bit more of a challenge because this is a, um, and this is my own personal view after watching it. Uh, Lummi is in a food desert. It's really hard for us to get good, nutritious food. Uh, now, why is that? Part of that is is the decline in our own natural foods. We used to have access to salmon all the time. Unfortunately, we don't. Uh, we used to, you know, we used to be able to go digging for clams. Uh, that's kind of a hit or miss. Although, fortunately for us, the uh, Lummi government just negotiated a nice settlement with the farmers. So hopefully, we'll get uh, the farmers who live upstream and their dairy farms pollute the river, which then pollute our, our shellfish bed. Um, but now there's a nice agreement, and I expect to see the, the shellfish bed health improve. Um, and then the other thing is is it also dates back to the, the government-provided um, foods. Uh, back in the day when, when the government forced us onto reservations, uh, they also had a surplus of food from the Midwestern farmers, um, and, and here was a, and they were looking for ways to get rid of it, um, because we needed, they, they had the surplus, and so here was a, a ready population who wasn't, you know, who in, in some ways starving, because these people were moved off their traditional lands, and so then they provided a lot of high-calorie dense foods, uh, you know, corn-based foods, wheat, oil, you know, all these things are not traditional to our tribes. We, we ate, you know, game, venison, fish, seafood, um, and we had to work to get it. We had to canoe out, you know, we had our reef nets, and now that's, that's um, unfortunately, those foods are not readily available like they used to. And so now we switch to this Western-based diet that's very calorie dense, and we're also not we're also sitting around. The kids are sitting around uh, playing video games. I mentioned earlier that I like to play video games, um, but uh, so it's just it's it's uh, I'm kind of touching on a, a broader picture here of why lummies have become more obese. It has a lot to do with the change in diet, the change in exercise. Um, and the you know, and then part of it now is 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 the economic poverty as well. Boy, that was a long, long answer to your question well, about chronic. Well, that's a good answer though, and I think uh, you know you, uh, you and Doctor uh, Justin Iwasaki are up to the challenge here, as we face uh, you know underfunding and uh, these kinds of uh, health problems in our community and. In building uh, a good database to to be perhaps more strategic in our efforts there at the clinic, but what are those things that we're doing to to improve our healthcare delivery system that we haven't talked about yet? Maybe that might be community health education, maybe community outreach, or those types of things uh, on the preventative end that uh, we're thinking about doing, or or we're already doing it uh, for our people. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. You reminded me of um, one of the things I forgot, and that's we have uh, we have a nutritionist, and also uh, you know Don, who's the, the diabetic counselor, is also um, very well uh, uh, knowledgeable about nutrition. This uh, our nutritionist Monica is working closely with 
um, our food distribution group, whom we call and Lummies call the Kamad Squad, uh, which is, you know, the, the title of it comes from what I talked about with the government giving food to the tribe. They called it commodity foods. And so Kamad Squad is, is a, is a um, it's almost like owning the name of commodity foods and now it's become Kamad Squad, which I think is a great name. Um, and they're, they're the group that distributes food to a lot of uh, Lummi tribal need, uh, members who are in need of food. And I would say for the past year and a half and, and also in the, in the future, Monica, has, uh, our nutritionist at the clinic, has been uh, working closely with Kamad Squad uh, in, in creating uh, an appropriate commodity foods. Um, but uh, the other thing that, that I, I always have to remind myself is sometimes some of the Lummi tribal members, uh, a lot of them are just trying to survive day to day. And it's, you know, it's, it's easy for me to sit here as a physician, um, someone who has access to nutritious foods. It's easy for me sometimes to sit here and say, no, you should go buy vegetables, you should go do this. And um, when in reality, that patient whom I'm talking to, he hears that, but he's actually thinking about how am I going to get dinner tonight um, when he only has $5 or $10 in his pocket. Uh, so in, in, in many ways, going for the high-calorie-dense food is, is a natural response to the situation they're in. Um, as you can see, what I'm getting to is a lot of this is inter interconnected. Uh, you know, you can't have economic security without good health, and you can't have good health without economic security. Uh, and so one way to do that is with the Kamad squads. They provide food to people like that, and sometimes if, they, if we're able to provide food that tastes good, it's culturally appropriate, then our hope is that it'll help with the, you know, obesity. Um, Actually, this I forgot to mention another thing. We have an awesome gym now. That gym is right next to our clinic. It has a weight room. It has, this is also, um, you know, it was being built, but uh, uh, Justin Iwasaki has also uh, found a way to expand the gym and help cover, um, you know, the cost of it. And it, at this gym, we have a physical therapist whom we refer to for our clinic. For people with, uh, our biggest complaint is back pain, believe it or not. So we refer, you know, the physical therapist can help with that. That's great. And, and you're right. The uh, Kamad Squad is a great place to get healthy food. I, I was down there not too long ago, just uh, a lot of fruits and vegetables. I know they, they canned salmon this year. I look forward to the day when we have gluten-free uh, fried bread. <laughs> That'd be fun. And uh and yes, we'll have the Quantum Isle again this year, the week of Stamish. We'll be right back with more uh, on Siam Nostalgia, Friends and Relatives. I'm Daryl Holaire, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. listening to the Friends and Relatives Radio Hour. I'm Bo Garrow, and today we are here with Dakota Lane. Today I want to ask, um, you know, what are your values? You and relatively new to the medical field, how long have you, you know, been practicing medicine? 
Well, I, I find the term practicing medicine uh, pretty funny because technically that means I'm practicing my medicine every day on patients. Um, and regardless, uh, I've been there. I mean, I started med school in 2008, graduated med school uh, 2013. I took a year off, uh, believe it or not, to care for my daughter so uh, who was just born so my wife could, could finish a school. Um, and then I went back to med school and finished. Uh, when I graduate, part of the training in, in, in medicine, some people may or may not be aware, is that there's something called a residency. Um, and this residency is like an apprenticeship. Uh, and it depends on which specialty you go into. So um, I went into family medicine, which is a three-year residency. Uh, some of my colleagues who go into the surgical specialties, general surgery, orthopedics, their residency is anywhere from five to seven years, so it's, it's a longer time period. Um, <clears throat> and I bring this up because residency is much like an apprenticeship. Uh, as soon as on day one, uh, July 1st in 2013, I was on the floor in the hospital and, and with another doctor, and we were it. We were the docs. And uh, so you could say that I've been practicing since July 1st, 2013. Uh, but during those three years, I, you know, then go through some training at the end of the three years, uh, which was this uh, last May, I took a, what would we call a board certification, um, <clears throat> which I passed, thankfully. And uh, then uh, on September 1st, I started my job uh, at Lummi Health Clinic. Um, that's a long answer for your short question. <laughs> hey, no worries. Um you know, what are the, you know, dealing with all that stuff, I know in the medical field there has to be, like, codes and ethics and stuff like that, you know. Like, what practice or what do you have to do at the Lemming Health Clinic dealing with you know, a medical code of ethics? So one that all doctors take, including the first day of med school, um, is the Hippocratic Oath. And uh, to paraphrase it, it essentially just says, you know, putting the, the patient first, putting the patient's values and, uh, and their needs uh, and their choices before your own as a doctor. Um, and I think that generally applies to um, almost everyone. Uh, the one difference I would say is Lummi's a, a little bit more community-oriented. Decisions are made with families. Decisions are made with elders. You know, and that's more of a cultural thing. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't really change what the way I, it doesn't change my ethical code, uh, so to, you know, per se, as a doctor. Um, I'm still doing my best to treat the patient. Yeah, it kind of leads us into the next question. Um, you know, being, being a Native American and having, you know, those type of different, uh, more of different values, I would say, um, you know, what personal values do you apply while working and interacting within the Lummi community, being, you know, being a tribal member also, and bringing maybe your culture into? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily, I've, I mean, it's only been since September 1st. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily what I personally have brought, but rather the fact that I'm from Lummi, uh, I would say the majority of the patients that I see know my family well. They know my dad. They know my grandparents. And the patient actually brings more knowledge of that than uh, to the conversation than I bring to them. Because I don't have to describe my family to them. Um, so the end result being... And this is not necessarily a knock on my, my fellow uh, physicians or colleagues, um, but I have found just by being in the room and giving them the physician look like, you know, that I'm concerned and listening, which of course I am, um, they open up a lot more uh, than my colleagues. I find out more. Um, that's one. Uh, two, the second thing I notice is I have a lot more contacts in the community. Um, when, when, we, when our clinic hears of a patient 
struggling, whether, whether it be with alcohol, opiates, and the social worker or nurses are trying to call that patient directly um, and have a hard time getting a hold of them. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, but uh, I find that sometimes I can reach out to my own family members and um, informally and ask how things, who they are, I mean, uh, where the patient is and how to get a hold of them. So, you know, this is, to, to answer your question about what values um, I bring, I guess probably the best way to say it is I have just the family ties and connections. Um, uh, a little bit of understanding of the smokehouse. Uh, right now we're in smokehouse season in the winter. Um, and uh, people, you know, I know my, my physician uh, fellow colleagues who are doctors as well are, are perfectly capable. Uh, and um, but I just have noticed that I'm able to get more information, and that's just because purely because of, of, of who I am and where I'm from. Noah, um, you had mentioned like opioids, and um, you know a recent front page article in the New York Times uh, talked about you know this opioid epidemic in this country, and you know there's a lot of heroin and pharmaceutical deaths you know, that are, that kind of go along with opioid use, right? Um, what is our, what's the approach at the Lemmy Health Clinic in the Lemmy community? I remember in 2013, a New York Times article that described the epidemic in Lemmy. And the thing that shocked me the most was the baby who was crawling around, found some pills, and then the baby overdosed. That was my first introduction of how bad initially it was that Lummi. Uh, and so ever since then, it's been a, it's been a, uh, a major problem uh, that's affected all the families. Um, so uh, on a personal standpoint, you know, that, that probably affected me more than I realize now that I'm here and I've really focused on um, treating opiate addictions and how we can treat that. There's a couple of approaches uh, and it's 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 a probably one of the most challenging epidemics that any community has faced. Uh, certainly Lummi has a huge problem uh, and you know it's it's affected our community. It's also a national problem. Um, when I was in Florida there were the pill mills, and we had to really watch our narcotics there. Um, so, you know, and the short answer to your question is that we we have treatments at a Suboxone clinic. Uh, we have uh, well, the Lummi called Lummi Care. Um, that was started by uh, Rose um, Daryl. What's her name? Rose Scott. Scott. Thank you. Um, and she's you know that's it's a great center. Um, and it provides, you know, we're the only, one of the few tribes that actually has our own suboxone clinic. Um, and then the second approach is a, is a more, is a difficult one, and it's modeled off of the Nurse Family Partnership Program that was, uh, been well studied. Um, and essentially, you know, opiates, people take them for whatever reason whether to be cope, whether to cope with some stressful thing, whether it started just from uh, back pain or some sort of pain or surgery and then they get hooked on it. Um, that's now recently come into view with the medical field. It used to be that we treat all pain, uh, but now we recognize that we have to be judicious in when we get narcotics. So it's kind of a, a change in mentality uh, about who to give narcotics to. Recently, the um, I believe it's the FDA. I may have gotten this wrong, but essentially a, a governmental organization came out with some strong recommendations about when and when not to give opiates. Uh, to kind of paraphrase, it really is if you if you have a broken bone or cancer, you pretty much qualify for for narcotics. Anything else, generally no. 
Um, there are a few exceptions, but um, they're few and far between. So one is a change in the, I keep saying one, but I'm adding on to, to all the things I say as I talk about this. Um, the, the other thing is, is a change in, in mentality in the way we treat and give pain medications. So we're kind of following those guidelines. Now, I remember um, you talking about Suboxone and me not knowing very much about it. Can you briefly describe to the people out there like what it is? Yeah, so uh, this goes back to, uh, again, what I discussed about how uh, opiates work. There's the what we call the mu opioid receptor, which um, allows transmission of the pain signal to the brain. Uh, again, heroin attaches onto that and reduces the signal, and if you have too much, it reduces the ability to breathe, uh, when they, which is what happens when they overdose. Uh, so Suboxone, um, they've discovered, can is what we call an antagonist-agonist uh, medication, and it, it blocks, it both attaches to that receptor and then blocks heroin from attaching itself and building, you know, building up on that receptor. Uh, and then, uh, so, so, you know, what that does essentially in the big picture is it reduces the person's desire or drive to, to want to go get high. Uh, and then, uh, and then thereby reduce the high risk behaviors that's associated with, with heroin and, and narcotic use. Um, so at our Suboxone Clinic, uh, we have about 350, I would say, maybe a little less, uh, of people who are on it. Um, but the, the key to it is, is uh, the, the person, the, the addict, has, has to want to do it themselves. It does not matter how many times their, their husband, wife, mother, father, grandparents, family, doesn't matter how much they do, you know, confrontation or they drag them to care. That patient themselves have to want to do it. You can't, so so because they have to take the medication every day, um, and they're pretty strict about it. You got to do this other, you know, you do a bunch of urine drug screens, um, and you have to reprove your reliable patient, which is like, you know, for a heroin addict to make them reliable is 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 a challenge in itself. Thanks for the information. It, uh, it kind of clarifies it for me on my end. Um, I just, you know, just saw a bunch of people going to the clinic and wondered what it was. And so, to go back to the nurse family partnership, it was just started a couple months ago. Um, uh, Dr. Iwasaki uh, recognized that sometimes we have to start with the kids. And one of them is uh, nurse family partnership when they're born. Uh, these nurses contact, uh, see the mothers for the prenatal care and antenatal care and postnatal care. Uh, then also do um, home visits where they help the mothers with, um, in many ways, m take care of the babies. Uh, that's not to say these mothers don't know how, but sometimes it helps to have uh, a nurse uh, and you know the way I see it, these nurses are fulfilling the roles that typically our grandmothers and aunties used to fulfill, uh, but are in 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 some parts of our community they're not fulfilling those roles uh, for whatever reason. Some of it's you know you can argue it goes all the way back to the boarding schools when uh, families were ripped apart, and then those people came back and didn't know how to have a family. Um, you could also argue that alcohol and drugs get involved, and now the mother just has lost the ability to cope because raising babies are stressful. And so, um, as anybody knows who has a, a young one, I have two myself, and they drive me crazy, but I love them. What are your thoughts on uh, Narcan or Naloxone? Uh, I know that the... Lummi Police Department is the first police department in Washington State to carry naloxone. And um, also, in late of last year, the Bellingham Police Department just started carrying it. And I know that within two weeks, they, they saved someone's life with, with Narcan. Uh, can you tell our listeners what that is and, and a little more about it? So, um, 
to tell you what it is and what it's about, I'll just give you a little background on how opiates work. They, they work uh, by uh, attaching themselves to the mu opioid receptor, which then uh, inhibits the pain, the transmission of the pain signal to the brain. So if you have too much opiates, uh, it, it blocks more and more of those receptors, and your brain will then um, loses the ability to automatically breathe. Um, so, so you, when you overdose on heroin, you essentially stop breathing because there's too much heroin blocking the these receptors. Um, so now, how Narcan works is. Uh, depending on which way you use it. The way we give it to the Lummi uh, Police Department is a nasal spray, really easy to administer, um, and it goes straight into the nasal mucosa and then eventually makes its way to the brain uh, within seconds. And it essentially removes the narcotics from this receptor and blocks that, and therefore allows transmission from the brain to the lungs to breathe. Um, so that's that's kind of the background behind it. Um, now, uh, so as far as having Narcan available, I, I wholly, and our clinic uh, wholly supports it. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I know Dr. Iwasaki wanted me to bring that up. Um, yeah, Lummi PD was one of the first to implement it. Uh, there was a lot of pushback by, um, not, not necessarily PD, uh, the, the police department. Uh, but there were certainly people who told the police department that, uh, why would you do that? I mean, these are druggies anyways. Uh, but if you ask any alumni that, you know, every person who is using opiates is a family member, or we have a family member. And it's, it's, it's how can you, it's almost impossible for alumni to not help a family member. Um, so... That you know, with that thought process, we, uh, well, I say we, but it was the clinic and the Lummi PD as well as the Lummi Council, uh, all agreed that it was important we provide Narcan, and uh, it's not just you know that two weeks ago I, we we give out Narcan to anybody who asks it. Um, this leads into another thing that I forgot to mention on the previous question about what we're doing. We also do a, a needle exchange. Um, that is not well known, uh, but we uh, last year we exchanged 10,000 needles, believe it or not. It's a lot. Um, and while, you know, some would argue, and, and there is certainly some validity to this, some would argue that we're encouraging heroin abuse, um, we feel that uh, by providing clean needles and having them come to the clinic, we are able to offer them services, uh, Suboxone Clinic, and certainly I can speak, you know, personally to a few cases where that occurred. Uh, unfortunately, um, these two patients that I can think of relapsed, um, but, you know, it's, it's worth a try. They're, if they're going to use, they're going to use. Um, and, you know, the other reason why we share, or, uh, not why we share, why we exchange clean needles is that it um, reduces the risk of transmission for hepatitis C, HIV, and all the other bloodborne pathogens. Um, and uh, fortunately, you know, we're still a, a, a clinic that's getting getting our act together. Uh, so we don't have any data on um, how su successful we are at bringing those people in. Um, I think that's an avenue that we'd like to look into, um, but. Uh, it's also been well studied that needle exchanges do help bring these people in for, for services and treatment. Eno Aiton, real good. Dr. Lane, um, Suboxone, Narcan, needle exchange, especially the nurse family partnership. Uh, I should say that's the Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies. That's the name of the program. That's the name of the program. It's oh. modeled after the Nurse Family Partnership. Oh, well, thank you. All these things that uh, you folks are doing at the clinic, as well as partnering with uh, Youth Wellness and housing's got their uh, Chalangan housing uh, development coming aboard where 
folks that are uh, post-treatment, uh, post-incarceration will be receiving wraparound services right in the village. And I'm so happy that uh, we're having this conversation uh, a few generations ago. It's something we never talked about. And uh, now we're talking about it. I think uh, Dr. Bill Freeman down at the college says it best that uh, we would uh, <clears throat> rather walk away than try to talk about the, the pain around this, this subject. So that's really good. With that, uh, we'll be right back with Friends and Relatives Radio. I'm Bo Garrow, and we're here with Dakota Lane. We'll see you in a bit. there are between 80 to 100 children born every year at Lummi. Is that a normal birth rate for a community of our size? Um, actually, uh, it's a little, Justin and I were, were looking at this question earlier today. Uh, I think it's about, typically the, the average is 70 uh, per, for someone our, like a group our size. Uh, kind of getting the numbers a little off here. Um, so we have a little bit of a higher birth rate compared to, um, I guess, the general population, um, but not that much higher. Um, and did you ask about the mortality rate or what were oh, you? Yeah. Okay, so it seems about, seems about the right size. Okay. I mean, it's a little, little higher. Okay. What about our mortality rate? Uh, that's a tough question to answer again because this alludes to. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't talking to the mic. Ready? What about our mortality rate? Are we living longer? Uh, again, this this question alludes you know, to an answer I gave uh, a while, uh, a little bit back. Um, our facility doesn't have the the technical expertise just yet or and the team together to be able to, to answer this question but certainly uh, Justin Iwasaki who's our medical director is, is putting together a good team with the the goal of being able to answer questions like this and how alumni's are as a community um, now anecdotally uh, our mortality rate is probably higher you know um, you know, we have, we have probably skews younger, uh, meaning that the average life expectancy skews younger because um, we have a lot of young people who, who pass away. Um, some of that's from uh, drug overdose. Some of that's from accidents. We seem to be a high-risk group that likes to take high-risk. Uh, automobile accidents, um, some, some that involve alcohol, some that don't. Um, so I would argue that, that we have a lower um, life expectancy and, and therefore a higher mortality rate. I just don't have the numbers or data to support it. Our healthcare plans for the future include keeping pace with growth within the community. Uh, what's the vision there? What are some of the goals, both in terms of brick and mortar and our approach to building a better healthcare delivery system? Uh, I think the best answer to that is uh, Justin and I are working towards building a new healthcare clinic. Um, we are are we have put forward a resolution in front of the um, Lummi government, the Lummi Council, um, to get their approval to form a committee uh, that will explore this idea. Uh, included in that is is exploring the funding. Um, fortunately, we do have the funding which was given to us uh, with Obamacare, with the Medicaid and third-party billing, we're able to save up money. Um, and, and we could probably pay 
for a new one um, in t anytime soon. So to our new clinic will not take away from any of the council members' precious budget. Uh, and and if anything, um, you know, we our clinic is able to generate enough revenue to build a new clinic. We already have some savings uh, for that. So February 1st, we go in front of the council for their approval for this committee. Some of it will look at location. Others will look at uh, uh, you know, a viable funding, alter uh, funding, which we believe we have, but this is what the committee's for. And then the third thing is about the needs of the community. Uh, we'll have three, three community meetings discussing what the community would like out of this clinic. Uh, I personally have some ideas, but I've learned that uh, many of my ideas are, are generally not what the community wants. You know, I have some medical things that I'd like. Um, so I'll, I'm looking forward to those community visits uh, to learn. Um, and <clears throat> so, so that clinic will kind of be the linchpin to many to address many of the problems that Lummies face. Um, it will allow us to provide better coordination of care. It will allow us to have um, have the space for personnel. Uh, right now, our clinic we're putting uh, Justin is is putting people that he just hires into closets because that's the only space we have, um, and uh, we'd like to provide them with better space. Um, and so, with this new clinic, it would allow because we like to have babies at Lummi, it would allow us to have a facility big enough to accommodate uh, not just the current population, but for any uh, expected growth. As a parting comment, what advice would you like to leave our uh, listeners? Uh, you know, I, if, if for the audience, uh, I think probably it, many people have not been exposed to Lummi and Lummi as a uh, community. Um, m many people have their um, kind of preconceived ideas. Um, and and where in fact, you know, and sometimes, you know, Lummies can be difficult to work with. Uh, I would argue that's not without reason. This is a group that's been forced to live on this land that... Um, uh, they didn't necessarily ag agree to, but you know, with the treaties, and so that. Uh, in addition to that, I would also argue that Lummies are just like uh, a lot of Americans, where we, um, many of them are focused on the day-to-day -day living, many of them are focused on paycheck to paycheck, uh, many of them want a good future for their children, and. Um, and I think uh, with our health clinic, we are working towards improving the health of Lummies, which has always been uh, my lifelong goal. Thank you, uh, Dr. Dakota Lane uh, Mamusia. Uh, thank you for being here and sharing with us uh, your, your knowledge and uh, the goals of the Lummi Tribal Health Clinic. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Heishka, and thank you all for listening to our words. If you missed any of the show, please go to our website, settingsomeproductions.org or kmre.org, and click on the podcast link. Today's episode, Friends and Relatives, was produced in the KMRE Spark Radio Studios located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. Thank you to the sound and recording team, Suzanne Blaze and Robert Muzzy, Please share our news with your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Listen for us on KMRE 102.3 FM, online, and on your TuneIn radio app on your smartphone. Yeah.